0: Friends, tonight we are in Exodus 25, 26, and 27. And I don't know quite how to handle the reading of this because it's three whole chapters and much of it has to do with the construction of the temple. it's not that this is not profitable to read. It's just that it's a lot, and it's the kind of thing that perhaps in your your annual Bible reading plans you'll you'll go through and you'll ask yourself, why are we getting all these directions for how the temple shall be constructed and how you know the ark of the covenant is to be positioned and and what about all the you know the the the. Um, the curtains and all this stuff, and the golden lampstand, and the table for bread, and the bronze altar, and the court of the tabernacle. What does all this have to do with anything? So here's what I would encourage you to do. We're going to reference certain parts of scripture that's that, that are, that's going to highlight things that we need to look at. So verse eight would be the, you know, the first the first example. Um, verse thirty with the bread of the presence. We'll probably read some things around this. Um, and I'll I'll recite some of the scripture just to kind of bring some of the context out. But then I would just invite you, if you would like to read these three chapters, do that. Uh, go home and do that, and and hopefully it will. the The principles that we're going to be talking about tonight will enrich these parts of your uh, daily Bible reading plan. When you come to these hard parts, and you're like, "What spiritual value at all?" Is in how the dimensions of the tabernacle and and things like that. Uh, so that's what we're we're hoping to to look at tonight. Uh, what we learn in the midst of all of this when God goes to great lengths and great detail to to demonstrate how He is supposed to be worshipped, what His tabernacle is supposed to look like, how the Ark of the Covenant is supposed to be situated. We see a picture of a God who is holy. He's high and lifted up. He is not to be approached lightly. We also see that he is a God who, though he has no business being near us, he's a God who desires to draw near to his people. He's a God who is present with his people. So in this scene, we're confronted with what may appear to be boring instructions on how to build the tabernacle and and all of its trappings. What, What does this mean? We see here an intricate picture of how a holy God draws near to his people through covenant, through covenant. So why don't I, we start reading in chapter 25, and we'll just read a few verses and get a little bit of the context. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel, for they sh- uh, uh, that they may take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. So there's even in the, even in the Old Testament, when tithing was commanded, there's still this principle in seed form of the heart that needs to be behind generosity in giving. You see that? It says, "From every man whose heart moves him, you shall." Receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, bronze, and blue and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, not really sure about that one, tanned ram, ram skins and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, and, the, and for the ephod, uh, and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary... For what purpose? That I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, you shall make it. Now there might be some value in me just reading all of this just to just to feel the weight of all of the, the intricate you know the, the the intricacies of how the tabernacle was to be set up, but you imagine what the tabernacle symbolizes. You know, there's a difference, of course, between the tabernacle and the temple. The temple was not constructed until the people were in their city, Jerusalem. But the tabernacle is portable. It's like it goes with them, which is a a vivid picture of how God desires to be with his people no matter where they are. If they need to move, if God tells them to move, they pack up that tent and God's presence, as it were, Goes with them. God desires to dwell in their midst. We see that in verse 8. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. So the institution of the tabernacle is this unnecessary act of kindness of God toward his people. It demonstrates his willingness to draw near to sinful people. And I would say we need to have that same kind of willingness toward others. This is the first time that God and mankind cohabit the earth in this kind of way since the fall in the Garden of Eden. Imagine that. We're, We're in Exodus 25, and of course, there's a sense in which God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. But this drawing near, this peculiar kind of God being near his sinful people, we haven't seen this. We haven't seen God being this near. People since he walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, as it were, in the Garden of Eden before Adam and Eve fell from him. Years and years and generations and generations and decades and hundreds of years have passed by, and here we are. So, where is the temple? Where is the tabernacle? Where is, in other words, God's presence? I've given you a little flow chart here on the paper. It was in the garden. God communed with people in an unmitigated, unveiled way in the Garden of Eden. But then sin brought in a broken relationship between Adam and Eve and God, between people and God. We see that only speeding up in Cain and Abel. People seem to be, you would imagine, just one generation away, just one generation away, having parents who walked with God You would imagine things would just only get slightly worse as the generations go on. Things seem to go downhill quite quickly after the Garden of Eden incident and the fall into sin. And of course, things become so bad that by the time of Noah, God blots out humanity except for Noah and his family. Hey, good evening. And then comes the tabernacle. The tabernacle is this is this image? It's this um, this picture of God drawing near to His people. It's portable. It's there, but it's not. The people are not where they want to be fully yet, are they? Because they're not in uh, in the temple. They're not where God's presence is to be in a more permanent place. What is all of this pointing toward the presence of God? Where is the presence of God to be ultimately? The presence of God is to be in Christ. When God again comes, and it says this actually, um, <clears throat> God comes and tabernacles among his people in the person of Jesus Christ. So garden, tabernacle, temple, Christ. And then what happens when we become new believers? Where is the presence of God then? Because Christ is no longer walking the earth. Christ has ascended. He's in heaven now at the right hand of the Father. Christ isn't walking among us. The presence of God is inside of believers because the Holy Spirit comes and dwells inside of us. We are the tabernacle of God now. God has come to take up residence inside those who are trusting in him. But one day, one day it will, be, it will be made manifest in even a better way in the new creation. The new creation that we just talked about in Isaiah 65, where it says that one day these things will be true. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer, God says, while they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Right now, as we walk with God, we know that He, the Holy Spirit lives inside of believers. He's present with us. He will always be near to us, even when we feel like it's not the truth. But we still, as we walk this earth, we encounter all kinds of hardship. We encounter all kinds of frustration, the fallout of our own sins, the fallout of sins of other people. Things just don't go well, but one day that won't be the case anymore when we are with God in the new heaven and the new earth. So, But what we're learning here in Exodus 25, 26, and 27 is that... um, the, the, the ornate nature of the tabernacle, it tells us a few things. First of all, it's a visible picture of the holiness of God. Only a holy God would have the, the tabernacle and his own worship constructed in such an intricate and holy way. It, it shows us that he's not like us. He's deserving of the most high praise. So we should be very careful not to think of God as primarily reachable. That's the, like, we should not think that we can just sashay into God's presence, right? The only reason that we now are able to enter God's presence is because of what Jesus did, is because of the finished work of Jesus. Otherwise, His presence is off-limits to us. His presence is completely off-limits to us. The, the chasm, the ravine, the Grand Canyon between us and God was great so we will not grow in gratitude over the gospel if we quietly think, God isn't really that far off from me. You won't be thankful for the gospel. You won't be thankful for what Jesus did if you really think that God is just a few steps away and really all it takes is for you to you know, take a couple... No, Jesus had to do all of this work. I mean, Jesus had to live the perfect life that we didn't live. Then we'll see, God, I see how much you did to make me right. And then the gratitude over the gospel is allowed to flourish in our hearts and in our lives. We also see this the mercy seat. Uh, it talks about the mercy seat uh, being here um, at the Ark of the Covenant. There's this mercy seat of uh, verse 17. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. You shall make two cherubim like angels of gold and hammered work, and you shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Uh, the, make the one cherub on the one end and the one cherub on the other end, one of, uh, of one piece with a mercy seat, you shall make the cherubim on its two ends. This is the kind of part that will just confuse the mess out of you when you're reading through. What is the mercy seat? Well, it's at least this. It's a constant reminder of the need to have a go-between between us and God. It's a reminder that the only reason that we are able to be friends with Jesus, friends with God is because of what Jesus did on our behalf. He was our go-between. He was our mediator. He did the work, and he pleads our case uh, uh, just like an attorney might uh, before a just judge. Um, and then we learn about the bread of the presence. Um, verse 23. Chapter 25, verse 23 and following, it talks about, You shall make the table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. You shall make a rim around it a hand breadth wide and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners and its... Four legs. Close to the frame the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with these. You shall make its plates, you shall make its plates and dishes for incense, and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings, you shall make them pure gold, and you shall here it comes, you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. So all this Really incredibly confusing stuff, perhaps. Here's what we learn. We see that even in the tabernacle, there's a picture of a meal. There's a picture of bread. Isn't that interesting? Where else do we hear about bread in the Bible? Well, we've already heard about it once when God sent manna from heaven to sustain the people. They only had bread for a day, right? Later in the New Testament, what does Jesus say about himself? He says, I am the bread of life. There was some bread in the Old Testament, and you ate it, and you, were, and you were full for a day. But if you eat of my, I am true bread, he said, if you eat of me, you will never hunger again. There's a picture of a meal. We remember another meal, don't we? The Passover meal. When, when, uh, when judgment was coming, and the, the people of Israel were told, you have to observe this meal, put blood, you know, you know, kill, you know, make, make the sacrifice, put blood over the doorpost, partake of this Passover meal, and whoever has the blood over the doorpost will, will be saved. Right? In the New Testament, we see a new kind of meal. Jesus says, eat of my body, and anybody who has my blood, as it were, on their doorpost, will be free forever. The blood of Jesus is what sets us free now. Um, And for those of us for whom that is true, those of us who are believers, those of us who have been baptized into, into, into into the faith and into the church, we partake of a meal together, don't we, every so often. The Lord's Supper, communion, to remember what Jesus did. And even perhaps to look further back, to remember... Um, the Passover meal that, that foretold what Jesus would do. So, even here in the, t- in, in the tabernacle, there's a picture of a meal setting us up to look toward Jesus. Setting the people of Israel up to look ahead toward Jesus. Um, I have gotten off of my notes, but that's what I just talked about, so now if you want to flip over to the back, we'll see, how does this connect to Christ? How does all of this stuff connect to Christ? Well, we're going to have to fast forward. We're going to skip over chapter 26, Exodus 26, and look at Exodus 27. Exodus 27, verse 1. Um, I might have just fibbed. Where is it? Oh, man. 27 21, not 27 1. Okay. 27 21. Mmm. <clears throat> Let's look at verse 20 and 21. This is back up a little bit. You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn. In the tent of meeting outside the veil that is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of God. So, verse 21 what does he call the tabernacle? It's a tent. But it's a certain kind of tent. So this is a tent of meeting. It's where you go to meet with God. This tabernacle is where you go to see God. But wait a second. Is that really true? Because who can really go into the inner courts of the tabernacle? Can, can just anybody sashay in there? No. Only the high priest gets to go into where the presence of God is supposed to be, right? And so we get kind of two pictures here. The first picture is that because there's a tabernacle, there's access to God. But that access is restricted. Not everybody can go in there, right? The priest gets to go in there and he gets to do his stuff. He gets to make atonement for the sins of the people and all this stuff. But here... He goes behind a curtain, very literally. He goes behind a curtain to do this. How does this connect to Jesus? How does this connect to the New Testament in in such a way that we today can make sense of it? Let's read in Hebrews 10. Listen to these beautiful, beautiful words. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places... Wait a second. I thought only the high priest could enter the holy place. Only the high priest can go into the holy of holies in the tabernacle, in the temple, Hebrews is saying, we can do it. How is that possible? How is it possible that we can be in the presence of God since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus? Only because of what Jesus has done. It's our access card. It's how we get in. It's how we get to know God. It's how we get to be in his presence. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. He says, come, right? There's no more restricted access anymore. Anybody through the blood of Jesus, if you're believing in Jesus, if you're placing your faith in him, that he has forgiven you for your sins, come. You can come. Hebrews says that Jesus' flesh, Jesus' broken body, His spilled blood, that is what opened the curtain. He is the true and better mediator. No longer do we need a high priest to go in there because Jesus is our high priest. He's the one who has opened, opened the, the gate Quite literally, he tore the veil. That veil in the tabernacle, in the temple, that separated the outside from the inside, what happened at Jesus' crucifixion? Remember, it was torn from top to bottom. Let's read about it. From now, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. He's on the cross at this point. He's crying out. He says, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out once again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And what happened when Jesus died on the cross? And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. And the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his, re- after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him Keeping watch over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Friends, this is why we teach through the Old Testament. Because let's say I just teach through, let's say I just drop down in Hebrews, or let's say I just drop down in Matthew 27, I have to go back to the Old Testament anyway to make all this make sense Right until you understand what the tabernacle is and how restricted access to God was, until you understand how much separation there was between the people and the holy of holies, this, this ripping of the veil that happened at Jesus' death, that makes no sense. They, th- they said this thing was like three feet thick. I mean, it's a, it's a thick, thick veil that separated the outside from the inside. And because of Jesus, anybody can come. Because because Jesus' body was broken and his blood was spilled, anybody who will call on the name of the Lord gets to go in there where nobody ought to be. And we do too, friends. I hope that that encourages you. Jesus has made a way. Jesus has opened the way to God's very presence. I'm going to pray and hopefully that's enough for you tonight. Listen, I really, I know it's 4th of July. Uh, I know maybe we should have called it tonight, but I'm having fun. So I appreciate y'all being out here tonight and and coming to hear God's Word. Um, I'll pray. We're going to have one song uh, just as a time to reflect. Uh, if you'd like to just reflect, sit there, and think about the Word of God that we've talked about and what it means, I would encourage you to do that. If you need to talk to me for any reason, I'll be right here on the, on the front pew just uh, in the same posture that, that you all are in, and we'll respond and we'll give God praise um, for, for His Word. Let's pray together. God, we thank You. We thank You for the picture that You give us in the Old Testament of the tabernacle, That access to you was so difficult. Access to you was impossible, almost. But we see what that picture sets us up for. It sets us up to see that Jesus came to tear the veil. Jesus came to make a way. Jesus came to do everything that we couldn't do so that we could have our sins forgiven because Jesus took the punishment for our sins. Thank you, God. Help us to grow in our knowledge of you. Help us to grow in our love and our thankfulness for the gospel. I pray, that, I pray that our gratitude over what you have done will only grow as we learn more about who you are and as we meditate on your word every day. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.